Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. Before we start, the last episode on Edward V, one of the princes in the tower, covered the story of his reign and Richard's usurpation. Therefore, this episode will not focus too much on those events, rather the other events of Richard's life and his reign. I hope you enjoy. In the words of a Shakespearean play, Richard was a bottled spider, a poisonous hunchbacked toad, an abortive rooting hog. For hundreds of years he has been portrayed as inhuman, tyrannical, treacherous and cruel. He had the monumental misfortune of character assassination by the dynasty that followed him, determined to blacken his name. For 400 years the toxic image has relented, but as we uncover the true annals of history, though we discover heinous crimes, ruthless opportunism, and depraved acts, we also discover a deeply complex, sometimes thoughtful, and shrewd politician. It will unquestionably be remembered as one of the most famous and consequential reigns in English history. This is Richard III. Richard was born on the 2nd of October, 1452, at Fotheringay Castle, in Northamptonshire, a favoured residence of his father, the Duke of York. Richard's mother was Cecily Neville. Richard was the 11th of 12 children, and the youngest to reach adulthood. His childhood coincided with the beginning of the Wars of the Roses, which saw the houses of York and Lancaster battle for the crown. After a humiliating defeat at the hands of the French in the Hundred Years' War, the English had begun turning on each other. His father became the Yorkist claimant, determined to oust the weak-willed Lancastrian king Henry VI. This was no easy feat. Richard's father's true battle was with the formidable Queen Margaret, who led the Lancastrians with remarkable stoicism. When Richard was eight years old, his father the Duke of York lost his personal battle for the crown when he was killed after being coaxed into battle at Wakefield in 1460. Richard and his brother George were smuggled to the Low Countries with their mother for their own protection. But this war was far from over. As was the theme of the Wars of the Roses, when a patriarch died, his eldest son instantly took up the mantle. This was Edward. Six months later, the Yorkists sent the Lancastrians scrambling for foreign shores. He was then crowned Edward IV in 1461. Edward's reign gave Richard an immediate notional position when he was made Commissioner of Array for the Western Counties, responsible for mustering and maintaining condition for war at the age of 11. He was then made the Duke of Gloucester. By 17, he was in full command. He was tutored by the Earl of Warwick, nicknamed the Kingmaker. When Edward IV married Elizabeth Woodville, it resulted in a schism at court. The Queen's 13 siblings required marriages, forcing nobles into penniless unions. This resulted in a rebellion led by the Earl of Warwick and Richard's elder brother, George, now the Duke of Clarence. 
Unlike Clarence, Richard stayed conspicuously loyal to his brother, the king. The rebels united with the old enemy, the Lancastrians, tucked away in poverty in France. Keen to live up to his lofty nickname, the kingmaker sought to place Henry VI back on the throne. When in 1460, the Lancastrian force invaded England, it was the Yorkists' turn to scramble for the shores. Richard, Edward, and loyalists William Hastings and Edward's brother-in-law Earl Rivers narrowly avoided capture landing in the Low Countries. As they had left with the utmost haste, they had almost nothing. The exiled king had to borrow money from a local bailiff for a warm coat. But the reinstallation of an inept king meant for perennial instability. Edward would return, met with a grovelling, remorseful Clarence. They squared off against the Lancastrians at Barnet and Tewkesbury just six months later, in 1471. At just 18, Richard became Edward's principal lieutenant, fighting in the thick of the action. It was a total Yorkist victory. This was the end of the Lancastrian cause. Warwick was killed, Margaret permanently exiled, and Henry VI and his young son eliminated in typical, apathetic, medieval fashion. Edward was restored as king. While Edward was pleasure-loving, extravagant and gluttonous, his brother Richard was family-built, antisocial and straight-faced. He was known to be tight-lipped and ill at ease around people. He had a nervous disposition, would bite his lower lip and fiddle with the rings around his fingers. He would also constantly sheathe and unsheathe his dagger. He lacked his brother's imposing height and had a crooked back with one shoulder lower than the other. But as he proved at Barnet and Tewkesbury, this did little to affect his ability on the battlefield. To make up for his unimpressive build, he had a sharp wit. He was provident and subtle, and according to a chronicler, he was a man much to be feared for circumspection and celerity. Richard, unlike his brother Clarence, had been steadfast. It is something the newly restored Edward IV would not forget. Edward set up the Council of the North in 1472 to improve governance. Richard, as president, was given effective free reign with a personal mission to acquire the loyalty of his people. It was the place where he would now spend most of his time. The presidency was no ceremonial position. He organised municipal elections, commuter taxes, quelled revolts, and even authorised the destruction of fishing traps. The Northerners, particularly in York, developed an affection towards Richard. In a world where the political machine was totally run in the South, Richard had skillfully forged a personal union with a region seen as untrustworthy, dangerous and arcane. It is something he would later rely heavily upon. With such success, Richard was a de facto second in command. The disgraced Clarence had been bypassed. They were about to butt heads. In 1469, Clarence had married the daughter of the Earl of Warwick, against the orders of his brother, the King. This preceded the great betrayal and union with the Lancastrians. With Warwick dead, Clarence's marriage had been tolerated, and he had inherited the most lucrative dowry in England. Now, Richard had set eyes on Warwick's other daughter, Anne. If he married her, he would be entitled to half of the estate. 
Clarence was understandably obdurate. The desperate Clarence even attempted to disguise Anne as a kitchen maid when Richard came to visit. But he could not prevent the union. Edward had no reason to favour his treacherous brother, especially over a loyal one. And inch by inch, Clarence lost parts of his acquired territory. When Edward became aware of Clarence's renewed treachery, he ensured he would not be fooled again with atonement. In 1478, the king ordered the execution of his brother. While Richard was aggrieved, he was left with no sibling rival. Nevertheless, upon hearing the news, he quietly retired to the north. In 1481, Richard was in command of a Scottish invasion, while the campaign failed to install a potential puppet on the throne. Richard managed to claim the border town of Berwick, a town that had been passed between the English and Scots for centuries. It hasn't changed hands since, and remains English to this day. On the 14th of April, 1483, Richard's life would drastically alter with the death of his brother, the king. His 12-year-old son was immediately declared King Edward V. On his deathbed, Edward IV had named Richard his protector. With such tense internal division between the old Yorkist guard and the Woodville family, the succession would be dangerously turbulent. With fears of a hostile Woodville takeover, Richard and his allies, William Hastings and the Duke of Buckingham, set about ensuring they were not frozen out of government. At what point Richard decided to claim the crown for himself will forever remain unanswered. When he met Edward's uncle and shooter Earl Rivers, he arrested him and sent him up north. He then began to utilise his position by installing his own men as constables and castles in the waters of the Thames and the streets of the capital. He continually delayed Edward's coronation while simultaneously sent letters readying his northern allies to muster for their leader. When Hastings realised Richard's true intention, he held secret talks with the Woodvilles and Edward V in the Tower of London. Richard responded without mercy. He was ambushed at court and summarily executed. When both sons of Edward IV were safely secure in the Tower of London, it was time for Richard to strike. The theologian Ralph Shaw harangued the late Edward IV and revealed his son's apparent illegitimacy. A few days later, a complicit anti-Woodville parliament officially deposed Edward V and installed Richard as king. In the same week, a few hundred miles in the deeply Ricardian north, Earl Rivers was executed. Richard had ordered the executions of two men Rivers and Hastings, with whom he had narrowly escaped the Lancastrians 13 years before, all in a quest for ultimate power. The deposition had been swiftly completed. A man once renowned for unwavering loyalty had just broken every rule of political propriety. While Richard II and Edward II had been removed as tyrannical leaders, Edward V was an innocent child and Richard's nephew. The twelfth child of a cousin of the old King Henry VI was crowned Richard III on the 6th of July, 1483. 
Perhaps aware of the potentially crippling, damning reputation he had now acquired, he immediately taught the nation with a large retinue to spread goodwill and according to chronicler Dominic Mancini, to powerfully attract the esteem of strangers. He refused gifts from locals, instead providing money to repair castles, settle old debts and spoiling them with sumptuous regal feasts. Reminiscent of a campaign, he distributed 13,000 badges emblazoned with his personal insignia, a ball symbolising Eberrachum, York. The title of King of the North was something he would not relinquish. He even travelled to Kent, a traditional hotbed for rebellion. He insisted on a special oath of allegiance and installed a trusted knight to down the evils of livery and maintenance. But no matter how generous his givings were, or grand his entrance, the dark nature of his succession meant conspiracies, rampant rumours, and teetering rebellions swirled. When he travelled around the towns, it bred a frenzy of gossip. In late September, the death of the princes in the tower, the deposed Edward V and his younger brother, was declared openly. By early autumn 1483, just weeks after Richard's coronation, rebellion was brewing. But the rebels needed a figurehead. It would come from the most unlikely source. The man saddled with a worthless Woodville marriage. A man who had done more to ensure Richard was crowned than anyone else. The Duke of Buckingham. His betrayal made little sense. Richard had treated him well. Many of his allies risked it all by joining him as Buckingham went from chief supporter of the king to his mortal foe. Buckingham astonishingly, willfully, joined forces with the Woodvilles. They formed a tripartite agreement with a mysterious, absent exile. Twelve years before, upon Edward's restoration, the exile had been smuggled abroad to Brittany as the strongest remaining Lancastrian claimant. He was the son of Margaret Beaufort, the great-granddaughter of John of Gaunt, the man from whom all subsequent claimants at the House of Lancaster would use as evidence for their right to the crown. His name was Henry Tudor. He had been silent for over a decade, but now the 26-year-old was ready to claim the crown. Buckingham and the Woodvilles were prepared to fully back this claim with secret plans for him to marry the daughter of Elizabeth Woodville, called Elizabeth of York the sister of the princes in the tower. In doing so, Henry could unite the houses of Lancaster and York and end the strife once and for all. But he had one huge obstacle. Richard. Upon hearing Buckingham's betrayal, the king contrived in no drowsy manner. As soon as he leaves his home, armed men should be ready to pounce upon all of his property. With Buckingham's contingents in Wales, the Woodvilles in the southwest, further rebels in the south, and Henry Tudor imminent on the shores, the rebellion had promise. But with forces splintered, communication would be key. The Kent rebels moved too soon. They were quickly put down by Richard's loyalist, the Duke of Norfolk, who quickly then defended London. Over in Wales, Buckingham was deeply hampered by some dreadful weather. His army was deluged. 
He also struggled to rally support due to his reputation and ill favour with tenants. As they struggled even to leave the confines of Wales, Buckingham was abandoned before he himself abandoned history. With sheer fear of the repercussions, Buckingham disguised himself as a commoner and was sheltered by a lifelong friend in Shropshire. <laughs> However, enticed by a thousand pound reward, the friendship proved hollow. Buckingham was given up. On the south coast, the same storm that had hampered Buckingham had meant Henry Tudor had arrived late at the end of October. As they approached Dorset, they were met with cheers and encouraged to join Buckingham's ranks. It was a ruse. Buckingham was already defeated. Henry was not deceived and returned to Brittany to fight another day. The rebellion was over. On the 2nd of November, Buckingham was found guilty of treason and beheaded in Salisbury Market Square. He had been feckless and short-sighted. But the suggestion that Buckingham was alone in a reckless rebellion against a stable rule was a story to hide the embarrassing truth that Edward IV's loyalists made up the bulk of the rebels. With all the connections to rebellion and conspiracies, the Woodvilles lost virtually everything. By stripping them of their livelihoods, Richard sent them directly into the hands of Henry Tudor, as they left in droves for Brittany, clinging onto a dream of a second Woodville union with the royal family. Meanwhile, by the end of 1483, Richard was in a position of relative comfort. According to the chronicler Comyn, Richard was reigning in greater splendour than any king of England in the last 100 years. He valued pageantry and dressed in sumptuous imported Italian velvets and cloths of gold and satin, embroidered and furred with ermine. He sought to distance his image from that of his licentious brother as a God-fearing king, establishing many ecclesiastical foundations and became an enthusiastic patron of King's and Queen's Colleges of Cambridge. He claimed his brother had followed the counsel of insolent, vicious people of inordinate avarice, despising counsel of good, virtuous and prudent people. While his first business in Parliament was to accuse Elizabeth Woodville of witchcraft, his overall vision was one that encouraged members to amiably hearken upon another and to forget private quarrels in order to emerge from blood-stained civil strife. His seemingly genuine concern for the people was reflected in a substantial domestic policy pronouncement. In constructing policy, he relied upon learned, experienced men, just like his brother had done. He ended benevolences, forced loans of the wealthy, a tactic to tether increasingly rich and powerful nobles. He laid heavy taxes on foreign imports in order to protect English produce except for the flourishing book trade, suggesting he was enlightened enough to see such benefits for the population. He sought to close legal loopholes by appointing qualified juries who could be free from intimidation. Most notable, perhaps, was the granting of bail nationwide to further protect the people, most notably from a seizure of their properties. He established the Court of Requests, where poor people who couldn't afford legal representation could have grievances heard. 
He had a healthy respect for the Lords and the Commons, meaning a cordial relationship could potentially bloom. Richard was progressive, yet due to the nature of his succession, the country would not warm to him overnight. A particular impediment to national approval was his deep loyalty to the North. During his reign, six out of the seven vacancies for the Order of the Garter were filled by Northerners. The Council of the North continued to allow prosperity. Out of the North, ill comes forth. Typified suspicious discriminatory southern attitudes. In the year 1484, as Richard continued to enact reams of statutes, personal tragedy struck. In April, his eldest son, the Prince of Wales, Edward, died. The chronicler Croyland described the reaction. This only son of his, in whom all the hopes of the royal succession fortified, in whom so many oaths were centred, was seized with an illness and died. You may have seen his father and mother in a state almost bordering on madness by reason of their sudden grief. The consequences would be felt. A lack of an heir naturally encouraged nobles to reconsider their allegiances. The Queen was unable to produce any more children. In March 1485, she too died. Rumours were rampant that Richard had already begun the search for a new wife to produce a new heir. The Lancastrian propaganda machine reeled relentlessly, spreading the rumour that Richard had poisoned his wife. His rival, Henry Tudor, had already set sights on Elizabeth of York, the sister of Edward V, as a perfect bride to finally put an end to York-Lancastrian division. They now claimed that Richard too had his eyes on Elizabeth, his niece. According to a visiting ambassador, Elizabeth was in the heart and thoughts of Richard, in body and in all. Suggesting Richard saw this union as a real possibility, and was perhaps already engaged. The Lancastrians were all too eager to spread the story. The potential union was seen as grotesque, unpalatable, and abhorrence of the Almighty. Crucially, Richard's northern supporters were against it. It meant Richard was forced to publicly deny attempts to marry his niece, claiming it never came into his thought or mind. With such developments, Henry Tudor and his allies saw 1485 as the perfect year to strike. He was proving a magnet for Lancastrian exiles, and began to style himself as the King of England. In response, Richard issued a proclamation, calling his enemies, rebels, traitors and extortioners contrary to truth, honour and nature. Henry was of bastard blood, and his father's and his mother's side. He is not fit to be king. But Henry was still stranded in Brittany. Instead of waiting for imminent invasion, perhaps Richard could strike first. Brittany was already demanding archers from Richard, as they warred with France, in return for keeping Henry shackled. Richard then entered negotiations with the treasurer of Brittany, to hand Henry over in return for Henry's earldom of Richmond. Henry, however, displayed the same acuity as he did on the shores of Dorset, and slipped away from Brittany into the court of Charles VIII of France. Now, there was nothing Richard could do. 
He had been expecting invasion since 1484. Now it was a certainty. It was just a matter of when. William Collingborn, a former servant of Richard's mother, and now covert ally of Henry Tudor, had coined the nickname for Richard and his acolytes. Cat, rat, dog, under the hog. He was condemned a traitor, and hanged, drawn and quartered, in such speedy fashion that when the butcher pulled out his heart, he could still be heard screaming, Oh Jesus, oh Jesus. This was meant as a brutal deterrent. According to the Chronicle of Virgil, the king was vexed, wrestled, and tormented with fear almost perpetually of Henry Tudor. Richard's own propaganda machine began to reel. If Henry Tudor invaded, he would do the most cruel murders, slaughters, robberies, and disinheritances that were ever seen in any Christian realm. He called on all citizens to defend themselves. By May 1485, Richard had stationed his war machine in the centre of the country, Nottingham Castle. On the 22nd of June, a high alert was issued for commissioners of array to be ready at an hour's notice to move out to war upon peril of losing their lives, lands and goods. On the 24th of July, agents informed Richard that Henry Tudor was ready to depart Harfleur for war and conquest. They had slipped their moorings and hoisted their sails. For the anxious, fidgety Richard, this came as something of a relief. The sleepless nights would soon be at an end, one way or another. Henry arrived in Pembroke on the 7th of August with an unimpressive force of old Ricardian agitators and 2,000 French convicts on a quest for a free pardon. This was not the sophisticated force needed to invade England. His hopes rested on the ability to attract a flurry of traitors with lucrative offers as they traversed the land. As he travelled across Wales, he held his banner up high, the Welsh dragon. Towns opened their gates. One landowner had claimed Henry would only advance over his belly, stood under a bridge and allowed Henry to pass. He then joined his ranks. Henry crossed into England. Scurriers brought word to Richard that a swollen Lancastrian force was heading straight for Nottingham. Richard was sore and broiled with melancholy for the deception of such turncoats. In response, Richard summoned three armies. The Stanleys from the northwest, the Percys from the northeast, and Norfolk from the south. Richard could rely on the loyalty of Norfolk. He was either the rat, the cat, or the dog. 
Thomas Stanley and Henry Percy certainly weren't. The Percys had been reluctant to support London. They had lost countless relatives over generations for this endless war. Richard was also concerned about Stanley's loyalty. He was right to be worried. Stanley, after all, was married to Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort. Richard seized his son as a hostage to ensure his support. Nevertheless, how these forces would align would only become clear on that fateful day. As the battle approached, Stanley claimed he was too sick to join. At the same moment, his son attempted to escape, only to be caught. On the 21st of August, 1485, both armies were just miles apart, near Ambien Hill, south of the market town of Bosworth, preparing to rise at dawn for one of the most famous battles in English history. Early the next morning, Richard rose after a fitful sleep, plagued by a terrible dream of horrible images haunting him. It was perhaps his day of reckoning. Richard, the seasoned warrior, headed an army astride a stunning white courser with the crown on his head. His army stretched for miles. Stanley's army was present, but stood at a distance. Henry, on the other hand, had never seen a battle and would remain protected at the rear by just 5,000 inexperienced soldiers. They were heavily outnumbered. Richard, confident, was determined to crush every rebel marching under Henry's banner. Norfolk's vanguard charged. The fighting was thick and deadly. When Richard called upon Stanley to fight for his son's life, he simply replied, I have other sons. Percy took Stanley's lead and awaited the victor. Henry's commander, the Earl of Oxford, was leading more effectively than Norfolk, with whom he engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Norfolk was slain with an arrow. With his commander gone and seemingly no support coming, Richard's army was demoralised, but not defeated. Scanning the battlefield anxiously, Richard spotted, in the distance, the banners of Henry Tudor. Inflamed with ire, he struck his horse with his spurs and charged in a personal bid to kill Henry Tudor. <laughs> his army followed, metres behind the rampant king as he clashed with the Lancastrian. Richard, in the thick of the fighting, unhorsed Sir John Cheney, a famous jousting champion and then killed William Brandon, Henry's standard bearer. Coming perilously close to Henry himself, it is even possible that they clashed swords. At this moment, Stanley chose a side. He chose the son of his wife and ordered his army to surround Richard's men. When offered an escape route by his loyalists, Richard refused. Even Richard's most vicious detractors honoured his bravery. His courage didn't fail him, even when his men forsook him. He preferred to take by the sword rather than foul flight to prolong his life. The royal army was overwhelmed. Richard was struck with glancing blows piercing his skull before a blade penetrated deep 
through the top of his head. His emotional charge towards his bitter enemy had been a reckless gamble. According to Virgil, he died manfully, alone in the thickest press of his enemies, staunchly and courageously. Richard III was the first English king to die in battle since Harold, and he was also the last. Upon his death, the royal army was defeated. Stanley took the crown and placed it on Henry's head. The final betrayal had cost Richard his life and his crown. His naked body was tied to a horse and carried to Leicester, where it was displayed at a local church. It was buried without ceremony in a shallow grave. For 400 years it was falsely claimed that his body had been thrown in a river. For 400 years his remains were lost, until on the 4th of February 2013, a skeleton discovered beneath the demolished Greyfriars Church in Leicester was confirmed beyond reasonable doubt to be Richard's, using the DNA of a matrilineal descendant living in Canada. The remains of Greyfriars was discovered under a car park, his remains under a reserved parking space, emblazoned R. His skeleton had 11 wounds, 8 to the skull. His most likely cause of death was large trauma to the skull. The skeleton shows a blade had hacked away at the rear. His spine was indeed discovered to be curved. On the 26th of March 2015, Richard was interred at Leicester Cathedral. Richard III was the very last of the Plantagenets, ending the Wars of the Roses with a regular feature, public brutality. It also ended the somewhat indefinable Middle Ages. Richard's total defeat brought up a new dawn in English history. He remains a deeply divisive figure. The Richard III Society has sought to dispel myths of his evil, perpetrated relentlessly by the Tudors long after his death, to disprove accusations of murder, to promote his progressive domestic policy, and his military prowess that truly defied Shakespearean description. He was England's only true King of the North, where according to Francis Bacon, his memories lay like leaves at the bottom of men's hearts, and when stirred, they would come up. But the nature of his usurpation, his apparent attempts to marry his niece, and his various other heinous crimes have proved potent in Tudor efforts to ensure Richard's lasting infamy. Thank you for listening. I thought this would be a perfect time to take a little break, so stay tuned. When I return, probably in the new year, it'll be time for the Tudors. Thanks again for all your support. It's been fantastic. Please follow us on Twitter at Kings Queens Pod and on Facebook, the Kings and Queens Podcast, to get updates. And I'll see you very soon. Thank you. <laughs>